0: How are you guys doing this morning? All right, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, like Richard said, my name is Ian. I'm the family ministry pastor down in Cedar Rapids. And man, it's just a joy to be with you guys, be able to uh, bring God's word as we continue through James. And we're getting into some really practical things in James, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks. Uh, and this week is not different. Uh, we're talking about conflict. How many of you guys have ever been in conflict before? How many of you are sitting next to the person you're currently in conflict with? Yeah, like, I've been married for eight years. Uh, my wife and I, we never argue at all, never once. Definitely not about the dirty clothes that sit next to my bed or don't go into the dirty clothes hamper. Maybe you guys have some of those arguments. Uh, it's an ongoing thing. Like It would earn frequent flyer miles in our house if we talked about how many times we argued about where my clothes go. Uh, it's like, it's not the hamper. And I'm like, it's not dirty. And she's like, well, then put it away. Well, it's also not quite clean. Uh, I wore it, but I'm planning on wearing it again. Uh, a comedian calls it clothes purgatory. And that's just where we're going to leave it. Like, that's where my clothes go. They have a purpose. And uh, then the argument kind of escalates a little bit. She's like, man, everything has a home. And I'm like, it is in its home. It's wh- that's where it goes. It's serving its purpose right now. And then she's like, man, I feel like I'm always just cleaning up after you and the kids, making everything look nice. And then I re- typically reply back with something really intelligent, like, why do you care about how things look all the time? And that, that typically solves our problem really well. And the argument's over, and we're fine. Uh, yeah, some of you know that's not true. And. But it's like, that's an ongoing conflict in our house. A really petty one, uh, but it it does always escalate more than it should. And it probably doesn't take long for you guys to think about arguments that you have. Maybe it's with a spouse or a family member or a friend, and uh, maybe it's a coworker. And they start really, sometimes they can start petty and they build, but sometimes they just start big. And some of you guys might be in some really big conflicts or have gone through some really big conflicts where people have cheated you out of a bunch of money. Maybe your spouse did something to you and you can't even look at them in the same way anymore and you just look at them with disgust. Maybe there's ongoing arguments at work with a coworker or a supervisor and there's just a lot of tension and a lot of conflict in your life. And we don't we don't have to look far to see conflict, it's all around us. It's in our homes, it's in our families. It's at our workplace. It's in our, uh, it's in our government. Like, arguments and conflict, they're everywhere. It's all around the world. And unfortunately, the church is no exception to that. Like, there's arguments that happen amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. There's conflict that goes on amongst one another. Like, the church is not exempt from the conflict and the arguments that we see going on in the world. And so that kind of leads us to ask kind of this question. Was like, why do we argue so much? Like, why do we have so much conflict with one another? Why are we always fighting? That's actually the question that James asks right away in chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And as much as we'd like for it to continue on with, it's because the people around you are dumb and they don't know what they're doing. That's not how it continues. Like, there's something beyond another person that causes conflict. It's not just the people around you. Sometimes it's us. Not sometimes. James is telling us, like, conflict with other people is more of an us issue than it is a them issue. It's more of an issue in our own heart and in our own soul than it is necessarily amongst someone else. And so if conflict is more about us and more about what is going on within us, how do we diagnose it? How do we get through it? And how do we pursue peace with one another? And that's really where James is going to take us as we jump into chapter 4. But before we get there, I want to remind you where we're at. Uh, we've been in chapter 3 the last couple of weeks. And in chapter 3, uh, James starts to get really practical and he starts talking about the tongue. And he starts talking about, hey, we need to be people who tame our tongue, who can control what we say. And ultimately what we see is that our inability to control our tongue stems from a heart problem. That we have issues with what we say because we have issues with what's going on in our hearts. That we don't treasure the gospel. We don't treasure God as much as we should in our hearts. And that comes out in what we say towards other people. It's a heart issue that comes out with word issues. And then last week we continued on kind of this same thought of when we have the wrong source, when our heart is messed up, when our heart is jacked up, that not only does it come out in bad words and things being said that we shouldn't say, it also comes out in bad wisdom comes out in things that we shouldn't believe. Things that James call unspiritual, earthly, and demonic wisdom. And that when we have a messed up heart, it's not just our words that suffer, but it's also our wisdom that suffers. And it leads to chaos, disorder, and evil practices, like he says in verses 16 and 17, instead of purity that looks like peace and gentleness, reason and mercy and good fruits. So that's where we've been, and really, as we jump into James 4, it's kind of this continuation of this same idea of, like, when something is wrong with the heart, we're going to see it play out in our relationships with other people. Which makes a lot of sense, because if you're having trouble concerning, like, what you're saying to other people, and you're believing the wrong things, it's going to come out in conflict with One another. And so that's really where we see this progression taking place and where we're going to go in this first part of James 4. And so we've only got three verses. Let's see what they say. James 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There's some pretty intense language that James is using here. He's talking about fights and quarreling. And then in verse 2, he, this word murder comes out. And uh, I don't know if James is really referring to actual physical murder taking place. I personally don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. Uh, depending on when James was written, some people do believe that. But I think what James is actually talking about is he's going back to Jesus' teaching on anger and murder. And we're actually going to go back and we're going to see that together in Matthew chapter 5. Because James does this a lot in this letter. He goes from uh, talking about things and then he also refers back to what Jesus had said in his Sermon on the Mount and all throughout his teachings. And so we're going to thumb back to Matthew chapter 5 Uh, We're going to read verses 21 through 22, because this is where I believe this uh, word for anger that James is getting at is coming from. He says, Have you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So here, Jesus is getting at the heart of murder. He's getting at the heart of murder, which is a heart of anger. And what he's saying is that murder is a sin. Murder is wrong. Absolutely. But you want to know what else is wrong? The anger that got you there. The anger that stirred up in your heart so much that it leads to those sorts of desires and those sorts of thoughts. That anger is just as much sin as the murder. Now, I'm not saying that that means you should go and murder anyone you're angry at. Like, there's obviously two different consequences on earth for those things. But in Jesus' eye and the Lord's eye, like, they're both sinful. And the anger in your heart is the same kind of heart that produces murder. The same heart that produces anger is the same heart that produces murder. That's what Jesus is getting at. And that's what I think James is getting at here. When he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You get so angry with one another. Like you're fighting and you're quarreling and you're getting so angry with one another that it's essentially the same kind of heart that produces murder. And so if that's what James is talking about, we start to get a better idea of what he's trying to tell this, these churches. What he's trying to tell them. He's wanting them to see, hey, you guys are in conflict. You guys are arguing with one another and it's serious. Like these guys in these churches, they were having actual arguments, not petty laundry arguments. Arguments, but like real conflict, real hurtful things are being said. Ongoing arguments are happening. There's real conflict, conflict that could potentially cause church division. Like, there's intense arguments going on in these churches, and what James really wants them to see is how serious it is. He's wanting them to know the arguments that you're in right now, the conflict that you have, it's not okay, it's harmful. It's hurtful. It's in the same category as murder. And so, church, the first thing I really want you guys to get from this morning as we go through this is maybe you just need to have a higher standard for what is sin. That sometimes we can think, oh, I just get angry. It's not that big of a deal. Or, yeah, I get in arguments or I get into fights. I just have a conflicting personality. It's like maybe, but also it's sin like it's wrong. The way that you treat other people, that's not okay. The arguments that, you're, uh, that are ongoing in your life, like the conflict that you have, the hatred that you have towards your brothers and sisters, like that's not right. The Bible calls it sin, Jesus calls it sin, and we need to call it sin. Like we got to stop just excusing it away, just saying, oh, I'm just an angry person or it runs in my family or something that we used to say in my house a lot is, I'm a Crosby, we get angry, we lose our temper sometimes. It's like, that might be true, but so is this, that it's sin. And it is sin against a holy God and against his image bearers. And until we start seeing our anger against one another are fighting with one another and our conflict with one another for what it is, we're never actually going to deal with it the way Scripture tells us to deal with it. I'm not just like, this sermon is not just like directed at you guys. Like, I'm right here with you. I've noticed the past few years, for some reason, like kids have the tendency to show me how angry I can be. They point out my sin a lot. Uh, some of you are laughing like it's true for you too. Good. Uh, we're in the same boat. But it's like over the last few years, I've just noticed... Man, I am angry. Like, I didn't think I was an angry person. I knew my dad was angry. I knew my brother was angry, but not me. Like, I'm the calm child. I'm angry. (laughs) And kids just have a really good way of showing you just, just how messed up your own heart is. And so this is all, like, for me, you guys are just listening to conversations that I've been having with God the last week or two as I've been preparing this. And so, uh, but here's where we need to start. We need to start taking our anger and our conflict and our arguing and our bitterness seriously. We need to start taking our fights and our quarreling seriously because it's serious. It's the same heart that produces murder. And so we need to kill that in our heart. And so, that if our anger towards brothers and sisters and our conflict with them is that serious of an issue, James is going to show us how can we work through it. Like, what is the cause of this sort of anger? What is the cause of this sort of fighting? And then how can we work through it and pursue peace with one another? And so, we're going to go back through this text, and we're going to take it kind of verse by verse, and we're going to see where does this anger, bitterness, where does this arguing and quarreling come from, And we're going to see how we can get through it. So James 4, starting in verse 1 again, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Right away, James is saying, hey, you want to know why you fight? You want to know why you quarrel with each other? Why you're always arguing and bickering? Is it not that your passions are warring within you? And this word for passions, it's the same word that we get pleasure from or the same word we get hedonism from. And hedonism is just the belief that our pleasures are our highest priority. That we should pursue what is most pleasing to us at all costs. And so that's the idea that James is kind of showing here is that, hey, it's your passions that are at war within you that are causing you to fight and quarrel with those around you. It's the pleasures that you are seeking that are waging war within you that are causing you to act in this way. It's what's causing the fight. The fight for pleasure within us is what's causing the fight with others outside. And as I read this, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 7. I want to read uh, some of Romans chapter 7 for you, because as I read this uh, language of like our pleasures uh, waging war inside of us, or our desires waging war inside of us, I'm reminded of Romans 7, starting in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I do. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Here, Paul is showing this war that is going on within us. That we have a desire to please God. Like we know the law and we, in our minds we want to obey God. But then we have this war going on. The passions of the flesh that are trying to get us to go against what we know to be good. And it's that same war that Paul is talking about there that James is talking about in James chapter 4. That the pleasures are at war within us. Our passions are at war within us. And that passion, that war within our body is what's causing us to fight and quarrel and be in arguments with those around us. He's saying it's not the other person. As much as we want it to be the other person, the reason we're in conflict, the reason you guys are in conflict and I'm in conflict, the reason I argue with my spouse is because of me. It's because there's desire within me that is waging war in my body. These pleasures waging war in us are causing conflict among us. And then as we keep going in James 4, verse 2, he tells us a little bit, he puts a little more flesh on what these are, what this passions at war within us are. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain So you fight and you quarrel. So specifically, James is saying, you desire and the things you desire that you do not have, they're causing you to fight and quarrel or they're causing you to murder. And coveting, wanting the things that your neighbor has that you don't coveting, that's actually leading you to more fighting and quarreling. So you're saying the conflict that you have can be traced back to the things that you want that you don't have. The conflict that's going on can be traced back to the things that you want that you don't have. And we can also look back at James 3, verse 16. We see this really playing out. It says, if you go up just a few verses, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So as James continues in these few verses in chapter 4, He's really just putting flesh on the bones of what does vile practices and disorder look like in the context of relationship. And so he's saying when you desire and you do not have and you seek things for selfish ambition and you covet what you don't have, the disorder that that looks like, the chaos that that looks like, the evil practices that that looks like are murder and fighting and quarreling. tracing it back to a heart issue. It's not the other person. It's not something going on with them. It's desiring what you don't have and coveting what you cannot obtain. So our conflict, our arguing, our fighting, our quarreling, it's actually not about them, but it's about us. And the messed up desires of our heart, waging war within our body. And he's saying your messed up desires. Wanting what you don't have, not getting what you want, it's leading to really these frustrated desires that when we don't have what we want, it causes us to be frustrated. When we want what we can't have, it forces us to, like, it makes us be more frustrated in our own desires, and it's those frustrated desires that are leading you to conflict. Now, you don't have to look far to see examples of this. Uh, we have four kids at home, and so we see this on the daily, right, right? Like uh, It's my oldest son's birthday today. He's turning five. And so it, he's getting big, and it's fun to watch him grow. But uh, he got a birthday present from a friend a couple of days ago. It's like this digital light bright, uh, the old-fashioned light brights where you put like the little pegs and the ba- black light. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is a digital one now, which is weird that they make one of those digital. But it's got little buttons on it. It lights up. He thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. He was so excited to show his sister when she got home. And in my head, I'm like, you do not want to show your sister. This is going to be bad. Anyway, sister gets home. First thing he does, he goes and grabs it. He's like, hey, look what I got. I got it as a present. And she sees it, and she's like, oh, that's really cool. And it kind of stops there. It's like, okay. She handled that a lot better than I thought she would. Three minutes later, Judah is playing with it on the couch. He's uh, just pushing the buttons. It's lighting up. And she goes up to him, and she's like, hey, can I play with that? And then she just takes it. Like she, he doesn't even answer her. It's like, hey, can I play with this? And then just grabs it away. And immediately like it all breaks loose, right? Like there's fighting, there's arguing. I think some hitting happened. Some tears were like shed. It was bad. And the reason why was because our daughter, she just wanted what she didn't have. She was coveting. And our son, he desired the thing that got taken away from him. And so there was arguing and fighting. On both sides, there was desire and coveting things that they no longer had. And it caused fighting, and it caused arguing, and it caused conflict. And that's just a little example of what happens in our lives all the time. Like at work, we want that promotion, and so we fight against other people for it. Our spouses, we just want the pleasures that we want, and so we argue with them. All of our conflict, all of our fighting, all of our arguing stems from us not having what we want. It comes from messed up desires that go unmet. That's where all of this comes from. So James is saying here, you desire and you do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And I love the phrasing that James uses, you covet and cannot obtain. Like, he doesn't say you don't obtain or you won't obtain. He says you can't obtain it. Like these things that you want, that you think are going to satisfy you, that you think are going to give you delight and satisfaction, they can't, you can't obtain it. You can't obtain what you're looking for in those things. So even if you got the things that you are coveting, it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to calm your desires. You're still going to want it. You're still going to long for something else. Because you covet and you cannot obtain it. And so you fight and you quarrel. And what you're left with is frustrated desires, leaving you frustrated with other people, causing conflict and arguing with one another that's the idea that James is getting at here. He says, you want to know why you're in conflict? It's because of you. You want the wrong things. You want it the wrong way. And you have unmet desires because you're desiring the wrong stuff. And so it begs the question of why do their desires get so frustrated so often? Like what's causing them to get these frustrated desires. And I think James is kind of anticipating this because as he finishes out verse two and into verse three, he tells them where these frustrated desires are really coming from. He says at the back part of verse two, uh, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. They don't have because they're not asking. Or they might not have because if they are asking, they're asking in the wrong way. And I think what James is doing here is he's giving two reasons why they have frustrated desires. And I think in the same sense why we have frustrated desires. Why we don't have the longings that we're longing for. And the first one is that you don't ask. The first reason why we have these frustrated desires is because we're not asking. And maybe there's a couple different reasons why maybe we're not asking. Maybe we're not asking because we know, hey, I shouldn't ask God for that. (laughs) Like, hey, you ever have that? You have this thought, it's like, oh, I want that thing. Should I pray about it? I mean, I don't know if God really wants me to have a new Chevy truck. Like, I don't don't really know if that's really what he's in for. So I'm just not going to pray about it. And so we don't pray because we don't want to bother God with something that we don't think is that important. So that's maybe one reason why we don't pray. We don't think the desire is worth praying about. But maybe another reason we don't ask is because we actually value what we're asking for more than the one we're going to. Like, maybe we don't ask because we want to jump straight to trying to get the thing that we want on our own, even if it's a good thing. I gave this example a couple of weeks ago to our teenagers. Uh, but there was a few years back, I was at this little conference, and I heard someone pray. And after hearing them pray, I just had this thought of like, man, I want to pray like that. Like, you ever hear someone pray and you're like, oh, that guy knows how to pray. Like, that, that's what I wanted. I was like, oh, I want to pray like that guy prays. He's got passion. Like, there's angst. There's intimacy with Jesus. And like, man, I want to pray like that. Passionate prayers. Like, that's a good desire to have, to want to pray more passionately to our Heavenly Father. So you want to know what I did with that desire to pray more passionately? I read a couple books. I just started trying to pray more passionately, just willing it. Being like, man, I'm just going to pray really passionate words. I'm going to use a lot of emotion. I'm going to read some books and maybe learn more about prayer. You want to know what I didn't do? I didn't ask God to help me pray that way. I didn't ask God to help me pray more passionately, to know him more, to desire him more, so I would pray more passionately to him. I jumped straight to doing it myself and trying to work on it on my own that I completely skipped. I completely skipped asking God to give me more desire for him that would come out in prayer to him. Like, do you know how foolish that is? Like, I've just been, like, ever since that I told that story a couple weeks ago, I've just been wrestling with that. and just like, how can I be so foolish to jump straight to trying to pray more passionately on my own? And then I sit here wondering, it's like, why can't I pray more passionately? Oh, have I even asked for it? You have not because you ask not. You don't have because you do not ask. And what that shows about us is that when we're people who don't ask for the things that we desire, the desires of our heart, What that shows is that we are so focused on our desire that we don't take time to focus on the one who can satisfy it. That we have these unmet desires because we don't ask the God who is able to satisfy, who is able to meet our desires, to give us what we desire. We don't have because we do not ask. And I think the scariest part of that is that when we don't have because we don't ask, it's not that we miss out on what we desire, but it means that our heart actually wants the wrong thing. It means that our heart actually wants the things that we can be given more than the one who can give it. So when we jump straight to trying to accomplish and straight to trying to do, instead of going to the God who can give, instead of going to him and asking for the desires of our heart, We're showing that, hey, I actually don't really care about the one who can give it. I just care about what I can get. And it actually shows that we have some messed up desires going on in our heart. We have a messed up heart that wants the wrong thing. We are prizing what we want, over prizing the God who is able to supply it. We don't ask, and our lack of asking shows that we actually have a misplaced desire. Guys, let this not be true of us. May we be a people who, when we have godly desires, good desires, that we bring them to God. That we go to God and we're acknowledging to him that he is over all things. He is in charge of all things. He is the giver of all good things. And we humbly submit to him in the process, saying, God, do with this what you will. We don't have because we do not ask. That's the first reason James says, hey, you have some frustrated you have some frustrated desires, and it's because you're not asking. But then in verse 3, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So maybe you're like, hey, I do ask. I do go to God. I do ask for that Chevy truck. Like, I'm asking. It's like, well, maybe you don't have your desires because you're asking for selfish reasons. You're asking not because you want to pursue God and his kingdom, but you're asking God for things because you're trying to pursue you and your kingdom. You're not trying to build up the kingdom of God. You're not trying to get closer to him. You're trying to build yourself up, build your own earthly kingdom. And you're, trying to, you're just trying to get all these things for your own selfish reasons, building up your own little kingdom here on this earth. So James is saying here, it's like, hey, maybe you're asking. But you're not getting it when you ask because you're asking for the wrong reasons. You're asking incorrectly. You're asking for your own selfish ambition. You're seeking your own pleasures in your own kingdom. So you're not going to get it. And really what both of these things show, what both of these things tell us is that we actually want the wrong things and we want it the wrong way. We desire the wrong things and we desire to get it in the wrong way. We desire the wrong things in the sense that we'd rather have the thing rather than the God who can give it. And we desire it in the wrong way because we want it for ourselves and not for the glory of God. And that is why we're so frustrated. Because we don't have what we want. We're like the toddler who takes the toy away from their brother. We don't. Man, we don't have it. I want it. I can't have it. I'm going to be angry about it. And so we fight and we argue and we quarrel and we have this murderous anger building up within us. See, our wrongly pursued desires, whether we desire the wrong things or we desire them for the wrong reasons or what's causing conflict between us. That there's conflict in the church because we're so selfish and we just want what we want when we want it. And it's causing us to be angry and fight with one another. And so if that's the problem, if the problem that's causing our fighting and our anger and our quarreling is within us, our own selfish desires from our own messed up heart, how do we change it? Like, how do we actually pursue peace with one another? our frustrated desires come from wanting the wrong thing and wanting it the wrong way, then if we're going to pursue peace with one another, then we have to desire the best thing. We have to desire the right thing, and that's God. We have to prize God above everything else. We have to treasure him more than we treasure anything else in this world. Like, you want to know how you can pursue peace with one another? Prize God more than anything else. It's hard to argue about other things when you're so focused on who God is. It's hard to fight about insignificant things when you're gazing upon the beauty of Jesus. Like, you want to pursue peace with one another? Prize God the most. Like, our problem isn't just that we don't have what we want, but that our hearts want the wrong things. We look to the wrong things to satisfy us. Because there's only one person that can satisfy us. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. There's nothing that can satisfy us in the world. Not a promotion, not a job, not a retirement plan. Not your ego, not your pride, not your social status. The only thing that can really satisfy us is God himself. If we want to pursue peace with one another, we need to be people that have a heart that prizes God above all else. You could say it like this, that prize God to pursue peace with one another. Prize God to pursue peace with one another. The only way to get through your frustrated desires is to desire the thing that can't frustrate you. Desire God. In Matthew, he says, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. Ask and it will be given. Like when our desire is set on Jesus, when we want him more than anything else, God willingly gives that to his children. We need to be people who desire God, who prize him above all things. And as a result, we will have peace with one another. So how do we make this a reality? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to see God. Like, we need to really see him. Like, we need to put on our spiritual glasses more often. Because if we saw God for who he is, like, if we really saw how beautiful he is, how great he is, how gracious he is and kind he is, how just he is, how holy he is, man, we would never go looking for satisfaction anywhere else because we'd be like, that's it. That's what I need. That's what I want. That's what I long for. Like, the God who's perfect and above everything, that he would come to earth to save me? Like, that's ridiculous. Of course I'm going to treasure him. Of course I'm going to prize him. When you rightly see God, man, it satisfies all desires you have. Because that, when you rightly see God, you'll rightly treasure him. You'll rightly prize him. And so, see God. See God for who he is. See him through his word, specifically through his son. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the glory of God in flesh and bone. So you want to see God more clearly? Look at Jesus. Get familiar with the gospels. Open it up. Read about who Jesus is, how he lived. Know Jesus and know God. So see God. Here's the second thing I would say is we need to seek God. First we see him and then we seek him. We stop trying to satisfy our desires on our own. And instead we go to God in prayer, begging him to move. If we first see him and we see him as the desire of our heart, then we go to him and ask him to give us more. Say, God, I want more of you. Help me desire you more. Help me be satisfied more in you than in anything else. And Matthew 7 tells us that if we do that, he is a good father and he's going to give good gifts to us. He's going to satisfy that desire. So we see God and then we seek God through prayer. And as we do those things, can you imagine the effect I would have on our relationships? Can you imagine the effect I would have Like it's no longer, man, I'm striving for this money. I'm striving to be right. I'm striving for this promotion. I'm striving for this job. We'd argue with people less, fight less, be angry less, stay in conflict less. Because who's better than money? Jesus. Who's better than being right all the time at home? Jesus. Who's better than building up wealth here on earth? Jesus is. When you start to see Jesus for who he is and seek him in prayer, it puts into perspective everything else in life so that you argue less, you have conflict less, there's less anger towards one another because we'd be people so in love with God who desire more of God that a lack of other things doesn't bother us that much. Because we're like, you can have the money. I have, I've got God. I don't know what else I need. When we prize God rightly, it shows up in the relationships that we have with one another. And we'd see more peace in our relationships and we'd see more rec- reconciliation in our conflicts. Because we prize the right thing, we're not striving after the things that can't actually satisfy. And, you know, as we consider what prizing God to pursue peace with others looks like, we have to turn our eyes to the cross. Because as we turn our eyes to the cross, we see Jesus, who prized closeness with God and obedience to God more than anything else. And by treasuring God more than even his physical life, he brought peace for us not just like peace that we can experience like here on earth, but he brought peace between us and God. That Jesus set aside those desires because he desired more to please the heavenly father. And in doing so on the cross, he provided reconciliation between us and our heavenly father. Like you want to look what this looks like lived out? You want to see what it looks like lived out? Look to Jesus, look to the cross. That's where you see when you prize and treasure God more than anything else, they're being peace with one another. And so that's how we're going to end our time this morning. We're going to get ready to take communion. And as I do, I want you guys to remember that we don't take communion lightly. Like this isn't just something that we blow through, breeze past, so we can sing some more songs. This is something we take seriously. Because on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. His body was broken, which was represented in the bread. His blood was shed, which is represented in the juice. And reconciliation was made possible with our heavenly Father because of what Jesus did on the cross. And before we do that, I want to just push in a little bit this morning as one of your pastors. That if you're in the middle of conflict with someone right now, whether it's someone in this church someone in your home or in your family, I want you to consider communion this morning. Like, really consider it. Remember the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed to bring sinners back to God. That if while we were separated from God, in the midst of sin, God would send Jesus to bring us back to him. Man, may communion drive you to reconciliation this morning. May it drive you to repentance. May it drive you to be reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And So if you're in the middle of conflict, may your heart break. May you repent. May you take communion and go and be reconciled. But maybe some others of you this morning, you're in the middle of conflict and you don't want to repent. You don't want to recognize your wrongdoing. You don't want to recognize those things, and you just have a heart that is against repentance right now. And you refuse to repent and forgive. I just want to challenge you this morning. Maybe maybe you shouldn't take communion this morning. That if your heart's in a place where you're unwilling to confess, you're unwilling to repent, and you're unwilling to forgive, maybe you should just pause this morning and consider, man, what am I proclaiming by taking communion? if I'm proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection to reconcile sinners to himself and I'm not willing to be reconciled to my brother or sister in Christ, there's something going on that you need to work through. So as you get ready to take communion this morning, don't enter into it lightly. Consider the conflict that you have with other people. Repent. Have a heart of forgiveness. Then as you repent and have a heart of forgiveness, come and take Celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross that would, that would bring sinners back to God. That would reconcile us to him forever. And nothing can ever change that. So let's pray. And when you're ready, come and eat. God, you are a good God. That while we were enemies of yours, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. God, we're so undeserving of that. But thanks be to Jesus that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can have life with you now and forever, that we can have peace with you. And God, may peace with you be our greatest treasure. May we desire you more, prize you more, and may that play out in our relationships with one another, that as we pursue you more and treasure you more and prize you more, that we'd pursue peace with one another. And may that be a picture of your gospel. May that be a picture of the work of Jesus on the cross. And may we be quick to tell the world about the reconciliation we can have with God through you. So God, we love you. Help us to treasure you more. Help us to delight in you more. And may, as we enter into song, may we worship you more and more for who you are and what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray.